Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent, mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. I'm so grateful to Ryan and Casey for this opportunity and for their faith in me. So let's start the show. Dr. Dina Kashawi is a Chicago-based OBGYN resident physician who's particularly interested in health outcomes that are unique to Middle Easterners and North Africans residing in the United States. With her fluency in the Arabic language, her research with Muslim patients in healthcare, and her work with immigrant, refugee, and first-generation communities in Chicago, she is currently conducting research on these populations and is working towards training and educating healthcare providers like us about the unique challenges that these populations face. Now, Dr. Kashawi is Muslim and wears a hijab and keeps her arms covered, so her first experience in the operating room as a medical student was, let's say, challenging. And it led her to start the blog Hijab in the OR. Her aim is to make the OR a safe and respectful place for hijab-wearing healthcare providers. We discussed what her experience was like as a medical student, but also what her experience has been like treating patients while wearing a hijab, both the good and the bad. We also discussed some of the basic tenets of Islam and the ones that we should be familiar with to help best treat our patients and to best help our trainees. We also discuss some of the issues in our healthcare system that can undermine Muslim patients and potentially impact their care. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Dina Kashawi, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. I appreciate it. So what's your origin story for hijab in the OR? What was the experience that led you to start the blog? And feel free to talk some trash about the Joint Commission in the process. So in my medical school, we have these rotating opportunities to shadow other specialties before your clinical years. And I had no experience in the field of medicine, no family in medicine to have any of that experience prior to med school. So I jumped onto the opportunity with the anesthesia shadowing group at my medical school. And on my first day, this was truly the first time I have stepped foot in the hospital aside from the med school side of things, like aside from the classes and the lectures, I make my way to the operating room to meet with the anesthesiologist who I was planning on shadowing for that entire day. And she told me what OR to meet her in. She told me how to get scrubs and where to be. And so doing as I was told, I changed into my scrubs. I put on my white coat and I walked into the substeral area of the OR. And you do some, you're doing something wrong when all of the faces turn to you as you're walking through the halls. And that's exactly what happened to me. 
in that moment that I had walked into the substerial area, both with my hijab and my white coat on. And the only reason I had my white coat on was because scrubs are short sleeves and I wear hijab. So everything has to be covered except for my hands and my face. And I didn't have any other alternative to cover my arms that would have been exposed otherwise. One of the nurses and the scrub techs who was in that case that I was supposed to be meeting my anesthesiologist and started reprimanding me for still having my white coat on. But then she then went on to go on to talk about my hijab. And she said, that thing on your head, that scarf is completely unallowed here. And she went on about it for what felt like eons, but in the moment was probably just 30 seconds. And as a medical student, you don't quite know what to say or how to respond when you are in an unfamiliar environment. You're really the lowest person on the medical totem pole. You don't know how to respond. You don't know how to act. And so I kept quiet about it. I didn't really have the insight to process what I wanted to say. And I let it simmer. I stepped out. I I texted the anesthesiologist who I was supposed to meet with and told her that there's a little bit of a hiccup. So I might be delayed if I end up coming at all. And so I started frantically trying to figure out who would know what I could do to get into the operating room. Because as far as I knew, I was only the third person in my medical school's hundred plus year history that wore hijab. And there weren't any physicians at my medical school or at the attached hospital system that wore hijab. So I really didn't have anybody to look up to. I didn't have any mentors. There was nobody in my Muslim community or my mosque, my masjid, none of that that wore hijab and was in medicine. So I was really limited. And I remember while I'm still supposed to be doing the shadowing opportunity, just Googling on my phone, what can I wear in the operating room with hijab, looking through all of this stuff. And there was no real information. And so there was a very kind Muslim gentleman who was a resident at the time who saw the whole encounter and clearly saw the aftermath of just me being in a state of confusion and not knowing how to respond. And he's, and he pointed over to a box and on top of the scrub saying, he's like, we for Muslims and for the other men who have really long beards, we wear these beard cap things that actually cover your neck. He's like, I wonder if you could use it. And so I went on to go put it on and it's a surgeon's hood. So it looks like a paper hijab that covers only to the clavicle. So it doesn't cover any other exposed area with the scrubs. But I did that. I then put on a second pair of scrubs with a collar turned the other way to make sure there was no exposed skin. And then I got a long sleeve scrub jacket that we had rummaged around to find. And I was finally able to go into the operating room to shadow this anesthesiologist. And by this time, it had been probably close to an hour or an hour and a half late. And I remember shadowing and the the whole entire day that I was shadowing, the only thing that was on my mind was this experience and how minuscule I was made to feel how uncomfortable I was made to feel because of something that's so critical and important to my identity, which was my Muslim faith and my religion. So I made it sort of my ultimate goal from that point forward that no other medical student will face the experience that I faced. Because if I had any interest in surgery or in any OR related field, that really could have pushed me away from it if I wasn't persistent about finding a solution. So Unfortunately, I know that my story isn't the only one, and I know there are many other medical students who subsequently have faced similar incidents. Some did know how to respond, some didn't know how to respond, but that's really what started the whole hijab in the OR blog. And fortunately, ever since then, in the last four, it's been about four years now that it's been up and running, 
majority of medical schools in the United States have enough information about it to already have these accommodations in place when they have students that are rotating in surgical subspecialties. And even residencies throughout the United States are now becoming more and more informed based on this information that was on the blog, which includes an infographic, how to scrub, what are the materials. I also um, will personally reach out to hospitals and just ask them if they have these things on in their inventory, like the surgeon's hood or disposable hijabs, disposable long sleeve scrub jackets that people can wear just so that we can be prepared if you have a high concentration of hijab wearing Muslim students, uh, medical students, or residents. Walk us through the solution. I know it's on the blog on the website, but what did you determine was the best way to accommodate this? Yeah. So the first thing I really want to start with is the hijab. And that in itself is something that covers the hair. Now, You could say a scrub cap, like the ones that some anesthesiologists wear or some surgeons wear, sports teams or your old school, your alumna stuff on it. It's kind of a similar thing, right? And this is always something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I wasn't quite sure why those were allowed based on the Joint Commission, but hijab wasn't. And there was really nothing in policy, nothing written when this incident happened a few years ago when I was starting medical school that said that you could even wear religious garb in the first place. But the research has shown that these scrub caps, for example, are not causing an increased risk of infection. So if there was no policy written about hijab, there was nothing that explicitly said you can or cannot wear your hijab in the operating room. There was policy written about scrub caps It was always a little on the fence about what the case was for that. So the first and foremost solution is if you are allowing surgeons, anesthesiologists, or really anybody on staff to wear a personal scrub cap in the substerial area or in the operating room, then a hijab is equally allowable. And that's probably one of the more ideal solutions. And the argument that some people will face, some people in infection control might say is, well, the neck is always exposed in a scrub cap, but if you're wearing a hijab, that area is potentially a nidus for infection. But when you think about it, nobody's really sitting there scrubbing their neck before every case. So really, if somebody's coming in with a clean and laundered hijab every day for the operating room, I would go as far as to say that person's neck space, that area that the fabric is covering, and the fabric itself is probably cleaner in that moment in time than somebody else's neck. I would argue that there are some hairy men out there. And when they wear scrub tops, which are mostly V-neck, their chest hair is exposed. And that, to me, seems myself included. So when I'm in the operating room, they make me cover my beard, but yet this other area of me is exposed. So I would think that the hijab covering more area would be more clean than what's being done right now, not less so right? Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And I wonder though, if the hesitation or the fact that there is always an argument against this is more so just because of the system of medicine itself. Agreed. Yes. Like very resistant to change. Actually in my hospital, we can't even wear those cloth scrub caps. They've done away with them. I think it's because people like making rules that justify their existence, right? My scrub cap is not falling off my head into the sterile field. How is it possibly just like your hijab? Your head isn't contacting the patient. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, there are some ridiculous rules out there. But 
you can't expose your arms. And when we scrub, we scrub up to your elbows. So how did you manage that? So there's a couple of instances. I have been very fortunate to be at hospitals that actually have individualized scrub sinks that have dividers between each one that are frosted glass. So this allows me to wear my short sleeve shirt, scrub past my elbow and go in first. I'm almost always the first person that scrubs so that I could be fully done before anybody else comes in and sees the rest of my arms exposed. This has been the norm for me at the different hospitals that I've been at. Now, in cases where you are at a shared sink or the sink doesn't have any dividers, I always would advocate for women who are wearing hijab to scrub first so that they can limit really the amount of time that other people are exposed to their skin, their arms, and then they can go and don first. Or one other option that I actually recently learned is allowable is wearing sterile sleeves underneath the surgical gown. So this is something that you really have to parse out if your hospital and their infection control department is okay with, but you'll scrub just a little bit more past the wrists, and then you will get into sterile sleeves, which means somebody else has to don the sterile sleeves on for you. But the way the sterile sleeves work is it's from your wrist to just about two, three inches shy of your shoulder. So it covers a really large surface area. It collects that little end of the short sleeve shirt part of the scrub. So none of your skin is exposed. And you can do this while you're still in the room. And then you can just wear your surgical, sterile surgical gown over that. So when you don't have the surgical sleeves available, after you scrub, the anesthesiologist is in the room with the patient. True. So aren't they seeing you? They are. Obviously, in a perfectly ideal world, nobody else would be around or you'd have a room of entirely female nurses, scrub techs, anesthesiologists, but you can't always guarantee this. And the beauty about the religion of Islam is it's not meant to be difficult. These are accommodations that are around and put in place so that you can try to comply as best as possible to the obligation of hijab. But you're not going to kick everybody out. You're not going to tell the anesthesiologist, hey, can you look away so I can put on my surgical gown? So there's obviously some room for people to bend a little bit to create a inclusive environment, but also one that's safe and healthy for the patient. Okay. So there's wiggle room. There's wiggle room. Yeah. Wow. That was clearly going to be helpful for a lot of the physicians that come after you, because this is going to be something that is more common. Clearly, if you're the third one in the history of you're in medical school, Yeah, you're really blazing a trail for a lot of them that come after you, which is an incredible thing to do. What has been your experience as a hijab-wearing physician while caring for patients? So it's been one of two things. It's either been this point of incredible connection with patients who've never seen a provider like them or who've never seen a provider who understands their religion and the cultural traditions or religious obligations that they have. And those moments are the constant reminder to me of why I'm in clinical medicine, why I choose to so outwardly express my religious identity. Because for many of these patients, it might be their first entry into healthcare, or they might have been following with a different doctor for a very long time. And then they see a Muslim physician or a Muslim sounding name, and they want to go because they feel like they have less explaining to do. They are advocated for a little bit more. Now on the flip side, and I truly mean the complete flip side, I've had experiences where people have been incredibly Islamophobic. 
Because as you can imagine, when you're wearing something that so visibly shows your religion, people who aren't receptive to your religion are going to use that as a target. I have heard some of the most vile things sometimes in the hospital because of my hijab. I have been called names that even the thought of make me so uncomfortable. And again, it's because I so outwardly appear to be Muslim. And this is something that I have made an active decision about while wearing my hijab. The other thing that I don't know if it's more so just because of the hijab or because maybe my last name isn't that common, but many people see me and at first glance ask me where I'm from. And they always seem to point to my hijab when they ask me that question. And I laugh about it because I am the most Chicago born, bred and raised person you can come around. We can hear it in the accent. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't have an accent as if I'm from anywhere else. So you heard me speak one sentence, you'd know I'm from Chicago. Now, that being said, it always humors me that people point to my hijab when they're asking where I'm from as if the religion of Islam belongs to one geographical location. So I will say for the most part, I've had significantly better experiences than some of the Islamophobic and hateful comments or xenophobic comments I've gotten, but they exist and it's not something to brush off. What are some of the tenets of Islam with which our leadership should be familiar with to improve the experience of our Muslim trainees? So this is actually something that doesn't ever get talked about, but it is two of the things actually I want to mention are two of the pillars of Islam. So Islam is based on five pillars or five tenets. The first one is the expression of your faith, believing that God is one of himself. There's nobody associated with God and that Muhammad is our prophet. The second tenet of Islam is prayer. And this is an incredibly important one because you might have Muslim trainees, residents, medical students, even attendings and other people in the hospital who are religiously observant with this tenet of Islam. And they are going to be praying five times a day. And the thing is, the way our prayers are based are from the sun, the way the sun rises, the sun sets, and all of the timing associated with that. So there will be many times during the day that you're Muslim trainee might need to step away for five to 10 minutes to go wash up and then to go pray somewhere quiet and then return back. And we never really ask permission, hey, can I go to the bathroom? But a lot of Muslim trainees feel uncomfortable constantly requesting to get five or 10 minutes to go pray. They feel like they can't really cut clinic and run out for a second, or they don't feel comfortable unscrubbing to go pray and coming back. So that's something that if you're Muslim trainees are steadfast in their prayer. They do want to continue doing that while they're training. Make sure you give them that room for opportunity, give them a nice quiet place to pray or allow them to be able to step away for a few minutes to step away from any obligation. So including holding their pager for maybe five, 10 minutes, just so that they can focus, pray, and then return back to their clinical work. The second thing that I think um, leadership should be familiar with is the month of Ramadan, which is where we fast from food, drinks, including water, gum, any PO, so any edible things. And then you're supposed to also be very diligent with your behavior. You're not supposed to curse. You're not supposed to smoke and whatnot. From the time that the sun rises until the time that the sun sets, actually from dawn rather. So as the sun is rising until the sun sets. 
And for many Muslim trainees, this is incredibly difficult when you're on like an inpatient service and you're getting there before the sun even starts to rise and you're there until eight or 9 p.m. and you're just running around doing codes, operating all day, clinic back to back, you're talking so much, you're parched, what have you. And you don't have that opportunity even sometimes to go and step away when the sun sets to break your fast. And if it's possible, especially for your residents, putting them on a night float for that month, for example, is that perfect little alternative because they'll be able to work at night, which is when they'll be eating. So their eating window is from when the sun sets until the sun starts to rise again. And when you're on a night shift, you're going to be awake. You're going to have the opportunity to drink coffee while you're working or eat while you're working, or at least have the nutritional sustenance at the time. And similarly, just for students or really anybody who's taking exams, just being a little bit more mindful about allowing students to take exams maybe after they've break, broken their fast or after Ramadan has ended, or maybe giving them alternatives of different times or locations in which they could do it, accommodations for Ramadan. Other things though, not associated with the pillars, the five pillars of Islam, really a thing to know is our diet. So Islamically, we are not supposed to have any pork-based products and we're not supposed to drink alcohol or consume any drugs or anything really that can take us out of our state of mind. And so if you're planning on hosting a social or drinks at an attending's house or something like this, just make sure that there are alternatives for your trainees, maybe not always scheduling socials at bars, which might be uncomfortable for Muslim trainees to walk into, especially if they're visibly Muslim. So just keeping in mind things like that. What about, same question, but for the care of Muslim patients. So what are some of the basic tenets of Islam? Certainly we're going to be discussing Ramadan as well, but other tenets of Islam with which physicians should be familiar with to help us care for our Muslim patients. So one of the biggest things, and I will start with Ramadan, is the way we dose our medications. As you can imagine, especially as people are getting older or they're more medically complex, they're going to be taking more medication. In Ramadan, you are supposed to abstain from food and drink of any sort, and this does include medication. Now, there are people that are not obligated to fast. Those are women who are menstruating, women who are pregnant, women who are breastfeeding, Anybody who is traveling, anybody who is ill, and anybody who's on the extremes of the ages, so pre-puberty or much older, and they really need that nutritional sustenance regularly. Sorry to interrupt, but it's, this seems like more of a question that is interpretation of scripture, but how do you define ill? It's how people want to define ill. This is something that they're if you're technically translating the term from the Quran into English, it just means the ill person. So some people can say, okay, is hypertension considered ill? Or are we talking like chronic kidney disease, stage four ill? Or are we, it's a very fine line as to what is considered ill. Now, the more modern interpretation or what a lot of people have universally agreed upon is ill means that you truly do not have the energy to be able to safely and healthily fast from the moment the sun starts to rise until the sun sets, either because you need constant nutrition or constant caloric intake, or because you need to be taking medications that are regularly dosed that you can't take, for example, once a day or once every other day. Now, aside from Ramadan, what are some of the other tenets that we should be familiar with? 
when we're treating our Muslim patients? One thing that I recently learned is ingredients in our medications and our very commonly used drugs. Now, heparin is porcine based, so pork based. And many observant Muslims will not take pork based or gelatin based medications. Now, if you think of any of your gel capsules, any antibiotics, vitamins, really a, a ton of medications that are gel capsule based, they're actually gelatin based, which again is a pork product. So making sure you have alternatives available for your patients, if you're prescribing medications to them that can contain pork or pork related, gelatin related products. There is bovine-based heparin. There are some hospitals in the United States that have it regularly on formulary just because of the sheer concentration of Muslims that are in their hospitals. But if you anticipate that your patient might be needing heparin, call down to the pharmacy, see if they have it available. And if they don't, try and find some alternative or something that could work for your patient. And similarly, same goes for gel capsules. If you have a tablet form or an IV form where you have a different way that you can administer this medication to your patient without having the gelatin gel-based capsule, that would be something to keep in mind. And then the last thing is something that I don't, I'm not quite sure if, if everybody understands or knows the physical constraints of our prayers. So when we pray, it's a series of bending, prostrating on the ground, your arms are in a certain way, your hips are flexed a certain way, your knees are flexed a certain way, especially when you're prostrating on the ground as you bow your head down to God. And for people who are maybe a little bit more impaired physically because of arthritis, for example, or they might have just had a total joint replacement, making sure you strictly tell your patient there are certain things in your prayer that you're not able to do because of your new joint, for example. And I actually, every time I have an orthopedic physician in my network, I always try to throw this out to them. Hey, just a heads up. If I were you, I would Google what praying looks like in Islam and then just walk your patients through making sure that they don't do the prostration. If they're recently recovering from a total joint arthroplasty, because it might actually cause more harm to a new joint than if you just let them recover. And in these instances, the accommodations are that the patient can sit on a chair or sit on a bench and do the prayers, but without having to get into those positions that might be compromising their joints. Wow. Excellent. You know, something as a non-Muslim individual, I never would have thought about, but we have to think, what are they going to be doing that might affect their recovery? Because they're going to make certain assumptions that we are not, or vice versa. We're going to make certain assumptions that they're going to know not to do this, but it's so important to them. So unless we specifically call it out, and discuss it, they might do something that's ultimately harmful. Yeah, absolutely. I had a question from a listener who's a surgeon, and he wanted to know when discussing surgery with a patient, what should be discussed about parts of the body that are going to be exposed during preparation for the case, and who's going to be present for that, for the prep? Yeah, this is... First of all, an incredible question, clearly very dignified, because one thing that I noticed- That was my question. I thought of it. It wasn't a listener. <laughs> it was definitely for me. Every surgical room I've been in, where sometimes when you're in the midst of getting the room prepped and counting and, and whatnot, 
there are some parts of the patient's body that are exposed that absolutely don't need to be exposed. And even though the patient is intubated and not conscious in the moment and, and they are not aware that they are undressed, there's still our duty to respect their privacy, respect their modesty. Let's say you are doing a total joint replacement or you're doing some other surgery where you have to expose a pretty large amount of body surface area. I would say first and foremost, reassure the patient that you will do your absolute best to only expose what is surgically necessary. So if you're, for example, doing something on the abdomen, we have these little drapes with the cute little window that are just in place of what's going to be exposed. And there's no need to keep the legs exposed or the arms exposed if they don't need to. You can put a bear hugger on the upper part of the body to make sure everything is covered. You can put some quarter sheets on the bottom half of the body before you put the drape, the surgical sterile drape on just to make sure that the patient is covered. The other thing, especially if you have Muslim women, patients who are wearing hijab, is allowing them to still wear the hijab when they're in the operating room. Now, some places, and I've seen, I know, uh, especially in large Muslim populations, hospitals already have this available where they'll have these disposable hijabs or these like aluminum foil looking space suits, almost like a ski mask that patients can wear when they're in the operating room and they need to continue to cover their hair. And ultimately, that's again, if a patient is wearing the hijab, because of their religious obligation, it's our duty as providers to give them that opportunity to continue expressing their religion and their faith, even when they're not fully aware of their surroundings or conscious about it. So just making sure they're covered, making sure uh, that their hijab stays on. The one other thing, and again, as an OB-GYN physician, this is something that we are very often a part of is, for example, placing the Foley or prepping the patient from below, prepping the patient vaginally if it's something uh, like a gyne onc or a gyne surgery where you need to expose one of the most intimate parts of a person, is making sure that truly the people who are in the operating room that can see this are the, the minimum necessary number of people that need to be there, right? There's no need for the four medical students and the three training nurses and the two circulators and the anesthesiologist and the runner between all the ORs and company for the devices. There's no need for all of those people to be there for something that's so incredibly intimate and uncomfortable. So if you can just have people turn away or step away or place the Foley, for example, or prep and the patient is in as much of a private environment as possible. And then to make sure you're putting the sterile drapes or the prep, anything that you need to cover, that's still sterile directly after that. That seems appropriate for anyone, irrespective of their religion. Yeah, that's very true. So we have time for one more question. And I know that was there was one more that you really wanted to get to. And that was the the systemic issues that can undermine Muslim patients, right? Yeah. So let's discuss that. What are some problems with our current healthcare system that can undermine Muslim patients? Now you discussed fasting during Ramadan, the porcine heparin and, and gel caps, but are there other issues that, that you want to discuss? There are a few. And I want to start off by saying that our duty as providers is to provide the best care for the patient 
regardless of our unconscious bias, regardless of our thoughts of what would be best for the patient. And again, irrespective of religion, it's important for us to understand what our patients want, what they desire, how they want their care to go forward. Now, one thing that I have noticed, and I've heard about this a lot anecdotally from both patients or Muslim trainees who are like, I cannot believe I just witnessed this, is oftentimes people have this misconception that if it's a Muslim woman or an older Muslim patient, male or woman, that really they do not have the decision-making when it comes to their health or their health autonomy. And there have been instances that I've seen and that I've heard about where a patient who has full capacity, full understanding, is not even directly looked at in the eye, and instead somebody like her husband or her younger 14-year-old son, for example, or maybe her brother or father are instead addressed and the entire conversation about her health care is held through him as a proxy. And it's not done so much as, oh, this patient doesn't understand English or, oh, this patient doesn't know what's best for her. It's, oh, I as a clinician have this misunderstanding that the conversation needs to be held with a male figure of authority because she is not able to make these choices independently. And that is ultimately false. And something that I think maybe because of a lack of familiarity of the religion, a lack of understanding of the culture or the traditions, our own unconscious biases, our own stereotyping, our own lack of awareness, or maybe our own discomfort with people being so different from us, has put our patients at such a disadvantage because we do not prioritize them in these situations. We're turning to somebody else to have the conversation. We're using somebody else to make their clinical decisions when this person, this Muslim woman has full understanding and full capacity. Now, it would be different if a patient is, you know what, I don't really know much about medicine. I don't even have enough health literacy for myself. But my husband here is a physician. He will understand more than I would. And then he will tell it to me in a way that I could understand. That's different, but at least approaching the conversation or looking the patient in the eye and allowing them to feel as if they have the autonomy in their own clinical decisions. See, my experience has been the opposite. If a man comes in with his significant other and it's a female, then you should address her because he is likely not going to pay attention to what you're telling him. And she is going to be the one who is going to have the better understanding in most situations. Case in point being my own parents, where you tell my dad anything, and when he gets home, he's going to say, oh, what did the doctor say? Oh, the doctor said I'm fine. And really what they said was, you're going to need a follow-up CAT scan in six months. We have to follow these nodules. You have to take this medication and that medication. So in fact, men often, irrespective of religion, really should be accompanied when they're going to the doctor's <laughs> office. Now, do you think that happens because of certain assumptions about the religion, or is it because they're addressing, is it because of an issue of translation or both? It could very much be both. The instances that I've seen and witnessed are with patients who are 100% English speaking. They do not even really? be in another language. Yeah. And it's happened in Chicago. It's happened at very large academic centers in Chicago, small community centers in Chicago. So it doesn't seem that there's any place that's immune. I do often see it though with patients who don't have 
understanding and comprehension of the English language. And in those instances, it's not so much that I understand that you are talking to and completely making direct eye contact with somebody else, but I can gauge why physician or healthcare provider is doing that. Yeah, your default is to talk to and look at the person that you're directly communicating with, even though really we should be looking at and speaking with the patient themselves and allowing the translator to translate. Yeah, exactly. And even when we use interpreter phones, for example, in the hospital, something that we were taught when we were uh, being trained on the like in-service associated with it is you look at your patient directly in the eye, even if you are strictly conversing with the interpreter, because this is still a conversation you're holding with your patient. So Dina, any parting words for our physician audience? A couple things. First and foremost, I am very inspired at the hunger and the desire that this current generation of physicians has to learn more about people from different backgrounds, to be more accommodating, to be more willing to change their habits and practices because they want to make their patient feel comfortable and they want their patient to have the autonomy over their care. And it's, again, it's truly something that's incredibly inspiring and encouraging to me because we live in a melting pot. We live in a world where we'll be seeing people from different backgrounds. And then the other thing is when in doubt, if there's something that you're not sure about or something that you've heard of, or you might understand that you have one Muslim patient that does X, Y, Z, but another Muslim patient that does ABC and you're unsure why there's a difference, just have an open conversation with your patients and see where they're coming from, see what they desire for themselves and for their care and see what we need to do as providers to make sure that we're offering the most religiously competent care that we can. They won't appreciate your assumptions. They will appreciate curiosity and interest in providing the best care that you can. Yes, absolutely. So where can we find you online? So blog that I started that sort of led onto this whole thing is hijabintheor.com, H-I-J-A-B-I-N-V-O-R.com. And then similarly, that is my Twitter handle, but the end of it has an underscore. Fantastic. You're a resident and you're already doing amazing things. Dina Kashawi, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.